You're listening to Have Mike Will Travel with Elizabeth Santry. Hi, I'm Elizabeth. Welcome to the show. This podcast is about creativity, the professional aspects of creativity. Well, you could also say it's about creative thinking. You see, a career in a creative profession typically means carving your own path and making a lot of important decisions alone. And when competition is fierce and the market's uncertain, getting firsthand insight can really help. Join me as I interview full-time creative professionals and ask them to reflect on these really important moments in their career. Each episode, my guests open up about significant and sometimes even subtle choices that have led to their success. I know it can feel lonely out there, so I hope you find their stories as inspiring as I do. So I'm wrapping up my UK tour, and I'm traveling underground in the tube. There's a busker in the background, and I'm switching trains to go to East London. I'm headed to the home of Marcus Vernerhead. He's the co-founder of Punderson's Gardens. It's a film production company. Now, I've been aware of Marcus's work for a while, so I was really thrilled that he set aside some time for us to sit down in his home and talk about his approach and his style to filmmaking. See, he was the kind of kid who was really serious about his art and professionalism and making his mark at an age where most kids are just still trying to figure out what it is they like. The cool thing about Marcus is that he's not only contributing and working really hard in a competitive environment towards his industry and his own creativity, but he's running a business. So here's the thing. He's allowing other people to have the experience of a creative profession as well. He's contributing to the industry and the economy. It was a real delight to have him. I knew he was going to be a thoughtful guest, and he gave really sensitive and rich answers. So it was easy for me to have a chat with him, but the really great part was how helpful it is for the audience to be let in. He was really open to talking about his process. I hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, Marcus, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for asking me to be part of it. Yeah, I appreciate your hospitality. So I did want to ask a little bit about, like, uh, where all the creativity or your exposure to school uh, and basically your story, when, when did, where did you go to school? Uh, I went to school in a place called Tumba, which is a suburb of Stockholm in Sweden, pre-college, mixed high school, so you actually leave when you're 18. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to, at that point, study photography and uh, TV and radio and printmaking, or sort of graphics, it should be. That's sort of where I, I started doing work, really, but I, I come from a family where my fa- father was copywriter, my mother was uh, an art director's sort of layout person. They ran a small, small advertising agency. So when I was a kid, I used to spend a lot of time in their agency, just playing around with what was then letter set and sort of uh, type that you had to rub down on a piece of paper and uh, make collages, etc. So that's really where I started doing these things, which probably led me to know I could, you know, 14 years of age, go into something that was a creative industry because I was aware of it. Because it's, it's reiterated in the home. You know that this isn't, you know that it's possible, you know that it's real and it's there. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, you can make money out of it. I mean, my dad used to be in music in the 70s and, you know, I grew up in a home home where we were, both me and my sister were exposed to people who made money out of being creative. Uh, I was fortunate in that sense. I was very interested in photography and uh, thought that 
that would result in becoming a photographer for National Geographic because I wanted to travel the world and things like that as a mm-hmm. kid. And then you sort of, you know, you, you work your way through it. You work your way towards something. And the school was very helpful. It was, you know, also not helpful in the sense of that it was school. And the one thing I tried to do constantly was not follow any of the rules and <laughs> not dealing with, with what we were supposed to do because we had... We were told to, to live to very low standards and, and I constantly felt that we can do better than this, etc. Now, is she an indecisive cat? Yes. Okay, so that's fair. We'll, we'll just let the audience yeah. know we're dealing with a very lovely, precocious <laughs> feline. Okay, yes. Okay. Uh, who keeps going in another room. Yeah. Uh, me and my friend, Mariano, who was my best friend at the time, we spent all our time in school copying other people's work to work out how it was done so we were looking at photography looking at filmmaking sort of where the photographer working out where did the light go how you know where did this pose come from etc we obviously were fascinated by fashion at the time and we sort of dedicated our whole schooling to only ever try and reproduce other things and get as close as possible to try and find some kind of structure for how was this done and Mm -hmm. uh, you know obviously by the choice of it trying to find a voice but not living under the illusion that we had some creative genius and a voice already that was my schooling years very much yeah i think dissection is i think a very normal typical thing i mean I, you hear of like engineers and they they break apart their family television or their you know telephone to understand how it works so i think deconstruction is a very normal process so that's what you guys were doing looking at the light sources and trying to find how the photos were created that's really cool yeah and you said something about rudimentary so would you say like apples were you exposed to digital work at that yeah, point yeah i mean i had the great fortune of going to school in uh, i come from the suburbs of stockholm from a middle class area of the suburbs but i went to school in what would be classified as a poor area even though people don't believe there are those <laughs> in sweden uh, and uh, it was a school with a lot of uh, a lot of troubles etc so what the government had done was build this u- humongous new build in the middle of that school which they dedicated only to media industries and had at the time, which was quite progressive, this is 1994, sponsored from Apple, Adobe, people like that. Wow. Uh, we had, you know, TV studios, radio studios. We had complete print works that worked professionally as well and um, therefore had an, what people would say early. I mean, I grew up in a family that had Macintosh since I was a kid, but uh, an early exposure to it. That's such a helpful leap, you know, because... Um I just think it's it, it can be a tricky transition for people um, who don't have it from day one. But it sounds like you were getting the exposure early on, and so so I'm assuming that the language, um, computer language, became a part of your everyday life uh, earlier than most people. It was, but it was also like in, weirdly enough, it was Apple Macintosh, and at the time when I went to school, they were going bust. You know, Steve Jobs wasn't oh, there right. anymore. This was the hard years of Apple when they built boxes that looked like PCs. They were totally the underdog. And we were being told we'd been taught the wrong system all over. And, uh, you know, we, so we were, funny. everyone told us that we can't believe you're working on Macintosh because that system is dead. Uh, you know, you can just well be working on Atari's. <laughs> right. uh, and then obviously a few years later, Jobs came back, the iMac came out, and we all know the rest of that story. But in my school, they thought it was better for us to learn MS-DOS than Photoshop. Mm. And programming than Photoshop. And yeah. we were convinced ourselves that Photoshop was much more fun. Yeah, and I think that usability is probably what, you know, propelled it in, amongst other reasons. But So did you go to uni in... Never went to uni. Okay. After that, I, I paralleled school. I, I managed to sort myself up with internships in a couple of interesting places. One of them was BBDO in Stockholm, which is a big advertising agency at the time. They're obviously big global. And uh, 
doing an internship there when I was 16 led me to then later be employed by them part-time and then I got employed full-time as soon as I left high school. Wow. So it was a very early start in that sense. Yeah. And where, where did this hunger to work? I mean, you're getting really, it sounds like you're doing some really professional, really, uh, you know, competitive work at a young age. Where did that, did that come from the home? Do you think it was seeing your parents and applying what you understood as an actual career creatively? Uh, I think that the hunger for that became, came out of a, a sense of independence. I saw schooling as being dependent on structures and systems, and I felt that oh, wow. the, the independence of doing work that you enjoyed, I thought it was really fun to be treated as a grown-up because you're actually not grown-up when you're 18, even if you're producing grown-up work. It, it was great, and, you know, the monetary benefits of it as well is that, you know, you've, you've, at 20, I made quite a lot of money. Uh, a lot of friends of mine made a lot of money at the time because it was the time of the, the first sort of internet boom, so around that time, a lot of people in my circle of friends were part of, of huge internet companies, etc. And just as today, you know, you could quickly become very rich. I wasn't part of that. I was still doing creative work and <laughs> doing sort of graphics and visual bits and so on. And therefore, you know, with that, you just have a salary. Mm -hmm. But I was, I was working at a very early age. But also I was working in quite commercial aspect of it because I was in advertising. This is straight line print advertising and TVCs. And kind of already knew it wasn't right so uh that's why i started searching for you know there must be another way of doing it you know there must be another way of what essentially is flogging product but doing it in a more elegant way mm. uh at the time you know a lot of things were about humor in tvc so it was about humor in advertising and so on and i was more interested in beauty and uh, narrative and stories etc rather than one-liners and and um stuff like that so I, I found you know through in school I was fascinated by a lot of people's work and you learn from sort of great masters uh Joseph Miller Brockman was one on the graphic side you know people like Nick Knight who was very active in in the 90s but quite soon learned that Nick worked a lot with a guy called Peter Saville and I love Peter's work Peter was an art director slash designer who worked out of London happened to do record covers for my favorite bands so he seemed to have a nice life he also did a lot of fashion adverts mm -hmm. uh, and uh, he seemed to have the right approach to what you were doing he was doing fun stuff with mm. the tools that we had you know i was doing uh, advertising for insurance companies and cars <laughs> and it seemed less fun it, it was less fun it seemed less fun and therefore i quite early on tried to search out trying to get to that part of it precocious kitty back again yeah uh and so that at, at about 19, I left the agency, or I had left the agency, I was working freelance uh, at different agencies, and decided to move to London. Mm. Uh, and that's where the sort of so London you, location yeah. came from. You had, you had pinpointed this as a as location that you needed to be in from Sweden? Mm, I didn't pinpoint it. Uh, I was at the time going out with somebody who was half Japanese, spent a lot of time in Tokyo, spent a lot of time in New York, and I wanted to go to either Tokyo or New York. Mm -hmm. Tokyo is the language barrier. Mm -hmm. uh, working in Japanese is incredibly difficult. And back in the late 90s, going to New York as a Swedish person, uh, it, as it still is, it's a lot of hassle, green cards, and quite a lot of money to do. Uh, European Union existed, and London was halfway. You can move here very easily from Sweden, and we decided to approve to move to London. Okay, okay. No, I like an honest answer. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It was just, it's poetic in the end, but at the time, it was just you were just making do with what you could be accessible yeah. to. Yeah, it's not that London is such a practicality, but it, it was, you know, the furthest I could get out of Stockholm and, and get towards New York or Tokyo or anything else and also get to, to work elsewhere. And I had before moving been in touch with 
Peter, I had the you know, benefit of moving here with a couple of friends who moved at the same time in the same industry and my girlfriend. Mm-hmm. So when I got here, I, I started working with Peter pretty much straight away and did freelance work for a couple of agencies and kept that side for money, but then ended up working with Peter for about four and a half, almost five years. Mm. And when did London feel like home or does it at all? Yeah, London feels at home for me now. I feel much more uh, like a Londoner than a Swedish person. Mm. Uh, I find it. Uh, trickier to be in Stockholm nowadays because I have weird quirks and ways of being that isn't Swedish anymore. London's felt at home in, in different aspects through the 15 years I've been here. After about two, three years, you realize you're probably not going to move. It's still not a comfortable place, but I was then very much dogmatically working with Peter only, working very, you know, at very high level uh, campaigns, etc. at a young age. So I was very usurped in it and, and therefore didn't very much treat London as home. London was a place where I was based in and just worked out of. And then I worked five to seven days a week and we worked very unorthodox hours and we worked all the time or we were hanging out all the time and worked mm. some hours. Uh, then London felt alien for quite a while and then London felt at home again. And now London is entirely at home together mm. with sort of pockets in the world that I feel very at home in because you find your own little ways around them. Yeah, and I feel like uh, the mentorship probably helped a bit. I mean, at least you're getting this, you're getting sustenance, you're getting information, you're getting fulfilled professionally. You have this relationship. You do, like, what did that mentorship mean to you? I mean, working with Peter was slightly unorthodox. The first time I met Peter, I met him as he legendary, always meets everyone in his uh, morning robe at four o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, Peter to be honest, had a couple of people working for him off-site in a place called Show Studio, which he'd started with his friend Nick. Uh, And I spent most of my days going over from uh, East London, where I lived, to Peter's place, hanging out with Peter, then getting in the car, and then slowly making my way through London to get to the studio to start working about 5, 6 in the afternoon, uh, and then going for dinner at about midnight to then go back and work from 1, 2 in the morning till about 3, 4. And then he dropped me off at my house, and then that sort of repeated. He had a very sort of social mentorship in that I learned to see London a lot through Peter's eyes, you know. Oh, cool. uh, I learned very early on that Selfridges was the only place in London that sells Goloas, uh, so therefore you have to go to Selfridges to buy cigarettes. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, I spent all my first years in London eating more or less dinner at the Groucho Club, which was one of the few places at the time that served dinner after midnight. And therefore had a, an orthodox upbringing in London, also meeting a lot of Peter's friends, also meeting people through Peter and in these places, which are actually the creative hubs of London. So, you know, uh, I remember one of the first people I met when I just got here was Kareth Wynne Evans, who was just amazing and a fantastic character. And, and uh, these people were in the vicinity, and I sort of felt, wow, you're actually working amongst great people Mm. people are doing really really fantastic work and and that mentorship came very much through peter in that he sort of he always introduced me as his equal and also uh, showed me that world of london Mm. which i think is quite difficult to get into if you're in uni Mm -hmm. but in uni you get the other benefit of that all your peers and the people you work with are going to be people your own age Uh, i got to know a lot of people in the 40s and in the 50s when i was 20 they are the people I end up working with a lot, mm-hmm. but I hardly know anyone my own age. Uh, <laughs> you think that makes you an old soul? I don't know. I'm sort of in between. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to know when you... Now, it might be a way, a great segue for you to tell about your transition, your professional and career transition, but I did want to know about identifying, when you identified as... You can go back as early as started identifying as an art director, an artist, whatever the word you want to use, but... Mm 
if, if you can tell the tale where it ends in directing, mm. like where it started and then where it's, it is now. It started as a kid with being obsessed by, you know, fascinated with photography, etc. And then that led on to, you know, finding what you can do with the means you have. I ended up doing a lot of graphics and then art direction came naturally because it's a mixture. It's a marriage of photography and graphics and you're working on your own, not always in the field. Uh, and I was always, always fascinated and, and in love with film. I spent uh, every day between 15 and 25 watching a film a day, which I catalogued in books uh, and uh, slavishly did so. Not You couldn't always do one a day, so maybe you had to catch up on seven on the weekend and stuff. But, <laughs> you know, I, I tended to do that. I knew I wanted to make film. But if you want to make film and you come from the country which produced Bergman and, and you know, you look at these things and you're 16 and you look at it and you go, there's no way I can pull off that. You know, there's mm. no way you've got this emotional range qualities, the stories, there's nothing there. So wait until you've got something to say, or at least you've found something to say. You know, other people, you can make other people's stories, uh, and you, you have to train your eye to find those. The, the sort of tra trajectory to become a director happened very gradually, and I, I, when I left Peter, that was, my aim was to work mostly as a director, but obviously the way you do it, this is early 2000s, you know, you buy a video camera at the time. You could edit on the computer, but Final Cut was completely new. Mm. Uh, these things were a lot less available than they are today. So I, when I left Peter, wanted to make films and had a lot of friends in the art world and ended up helping them out with films, ended up helping out a lot of fashion people, uh, which was uh, a lot of people I knew from my background at Show Studio, mm -hmm. doing motion image fashion, etc., which always done with no money no budget and and it was done for pure aesthetic reasons and experimental etc and uh, to survive i worked uh, for an art magazine called freeze which then gave me a lot of contacts in the art world that when later on me and my friend jeremy set up our studio was sort of the first clients we had we ended up producing a lot of artists work mm. because we could work with cameras and some artists want to make a film but they couldn't put together a production and stuff mm -hmm. so that's the sort of origins from from that where that came from and through the company i've been able to develop the direction that i do you know uh, we started about eight years ago and i've been you know making films for about 12 years and i was making films when with peter as well but becoming a director is a very slow process mm -hmm. and it's one that this very different ways to go about it you can either go to school and do it which is highly advisable and it's good because once again you get to know your peers mm. uh, but once again you get the lack of real world experience and actually a lot of direction and a lot of filmmaking is problem solving it's not just about knowing how to put the tools together and so on so real world aspect of it working commercially or working uh, in the art world with it working on your own finding out these things has been incredibly useful for me and probably was a director that suited me. I also wanted to ask you about, because I think you'd made a comment about problem solving, I think it's so great to align the definition of creative thinking and problem solving because that's essentially what it is. And I think that there is some misconceptions and misunderstandings about the creative life and, and or there's just the way of thinking, being mm -hmm. what that means to be creative. It's not always this aesthetic output. I mean, do you have any theories or philosophies about this process? When it comes to problem solving and creativity, of, of course, they, they're pretty much the same thing. What you do when you're trying to create something is you do the best you can with the tools you have at that moment, whether they're monetary, whether they're sort of equipment, whether they're, you know, people, etc. All of these things is what you can work with and what you try and do is do what you can with it. 
And being creative is to try and squeeze that into the most amazing thing you can do with what you have. Problem solving is, that's the sort of more romanticized side of it. Because actually a lot of times, particularly on film shoots, or in most cases, it's just saving something from going horribly wrong <laughs> because a tiny tiny thing doesn't exist you know uh, i don't know how many shoots i've been on where there's a screw missing and that screw is the one thing that holds the camera together and and holds it down to the tripod etc and we have as a, as a jo standing joke is that you just the one thing never to forget is tape because tape is the one thing that can at least cobble together your equipment <laughs> yeah. and save you from having things in the foreground etc and the the problem solving when you're actually doing things is incredibly banal you know it's not always about the problem solving on this great sort of genius level etc it's the computer crashing you know it's it's starting to rain and you only got these three hours to shoot this thing because that's when talent is around you know it's problem solving these things on the fly and trying to get what you can out of it and that problem solving is the fun part of being in the field doing it but then it, it's the same thing when you can then go back and you do the edit or you're in a dark room or whatever you're problem solving w with what you have because in the edit you have to solve the narrative structure because there's a scene that's missing right, or right. you didn't get that look you didn't get that shot and uh, that's when the editor comes in and problem solves it for you and and throughout the whole process all you're doing is is really problem solving i had the great fortune of working with an editor called martin hunter who spent about 10 years working with stanley kubrick and i was in despair one day in the edit suite because it was rubbish the whole scene we'd shot and i thought it was rubbish and i would i'd been there and martin who's much older and, and much wiser just said just take it easy you've got everything in there uh, actually i'm going to bring out what stanley used to say uh, <laughs> uh, and and he always said that you know making movies is just like sailing a boat that's just constantly leaking and it just never stops leaking that's all you're doing you're just trying to get across the yeah. sea and it's just leaking but you don't even have a goal with it yeah uh, and i'm probably paraphrasing him now but that mm -hmm. is very much what it feels like and that's the sort of that problem solving is it's the fun part of it mm. it never really goes right but you mentioned when you were initially describing the in the field problem solving and you said oh you know like you're sort of suggesting that you're not curing cancer by any means and these are not huge problems but it's so funny that if in the wrong mindset you can sabotage yourself and actually create and what's the expression a mountain out of a molehill yeah, and, and so if you don't have that clarity of mind that this isn't the end of the world kind of thing it, you can just completely go I think as a director shit. and in any gen in general creative sort of work you have to be aware of that you are probably one of your biggest enemies because if you're too set on, on driving through the idea you have in your head you quite often miss what it is that you've got in front of you and that is what you know what you should be looking for constantly and mm. that is what you're doing when you're in the field but try and achieve you set up this goal you try and get as close to the goal as possible but not seeing that this other route is better than the goal is incredibly dangerous and that's when you as you say make a mountain out of a molehill which can happen you know you become frustrated everyone notices you're frustrated and all of a sudden everyone's in a bad mood and what happened over lunch becomes a big talking point and then everyone is breaking down and you're actually the one person that's there to reassure everyone that it's fine and you're being frustrated because you're not getting what you want to have mm -hmm. because your idea of what you want to have is not realistic to achieve or flexible or flexible right yeah. <laughs> i feel like we can make some similar parallels to traveling in general you know yeah. it's when you go off the beaten path the real interesting stuff you yeah. can find and you can do and it, i mean not to sound too cliche but that, no but it's entirely that whatever happens is going to be have to be okay because yeah. it happened yeah. and then you know always knowing that okay 
we'll have to run it again. Let's do another take. Let's do another take, or let's do this again, etc. But also knowing that, yeah, we're not going to get much more out of these takes. So yeah. I can do something with this later on. Yeah. You know, knowing when to let go and knowing when to continue pursuing. Yeah, I think it's also great and reassuring to hear it from somebody who is developed in their career to say that because it sounds like you know I think there's a perception that you can outgrow certain things outgrow certain problems you yeah. know and it's just and, yeah. it's never ending like trying the, to make anything is struggle but that's what's fun about it you know that's why you yeah. try to do stuff yeah know? yeah you had mentioned um this work about outside artists and I'd love to hear more about this yeah we were talking you, you were talking earlier on about creativity and, and different versions of creativity and what I brought up and why I brought up outside artists obviously because a, a few of the films I've done uh, can be considered to be about outside artists we have Horst Ademite, he spent about 15 years of his lifetime taking Polaroids of everything in his surroundings, which are an amazing archive and an amazing collection of pictures, but never as a photographer, because mm. he was doing, in his mind, a scientific study about cold rays. I made a film about a Danish vagabond who spent six, seven years in the US on the road just taking pictures of his best friends on a half-format camera, giving blood to Ford film and just bouncing around. He never really knew why he took the pictures and then created one of the greatest archives of poverty in the American, in America in the in the sixties and seventies, uh, on par with Robert Frank's American, sometimes in my opinion better. But he never thought of being a photographer. One of my last films is about a guy who wanted to be an artist, is an artist, and has worked in his practice all his life, but has never had any recognition from any of the structures that support us as creative people or artists or something similar. And and I think sometimes, because we today are living in such a commercially driven world where we all think we're going to go to school to become creative or we're going to be creative because we can work uh, in film we can work in fashion we can work in advertising so we can make money and that's you know it's a profession and that's where the creativity is latched on to where it's actually a lot of people live with this misguided creativity which i think is really interesting you know i live entirely within the structures of how we create things you know my last film which is about uh, bob parks who is this artist who never had recognition was funded by the BBC, you know. I work entirely with the structures and, and the politics and the means that we have to deal with uh, to achieve what we're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas a lot of people out there don't do that, but that they're still being creative. And that yeah. is still, to me, you know, we, we shouldn't forget and we shouldn't associate creativity with monetary aspects. Mm -hmm. Creativity is just, as you say, it's problem solving, it's about doing stuff. And, and whether that stuff ever goes anywhere or not, doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, it's great when it does and you <laughs> make money out of it. But uh, if it doesn't go anywhere, it should never stop anyone from keeping doing it. Yeah, I think you're making a great point about purpose. And I think a lot of people, when they're deciding some creative or professional decisions, I think a lot of it, whether people want to admit it or not, is linked to how much purpose will this give me? How much recognition will this give me? Where will I go? Will I be remembered? Will I be seen? Yeah. You know, and I think it, you're bringing up such a beautiful point about just the worthiness of doing it for its own sake. That if it needs to be done, it needs to be done yeah, regardless or, of the capacity. It's, it's your way of dealing with the world. So, mm -hmm. you know, you, you kind of feel lost and lonely and, you know, like... like um, uh, Henry Darger, who's you know spent all his life in house in Chicago, making these amazing murals on on thin paper and building really creepy landscapes of of dolls and, and plastic kids, etc. But you know never to be recognised. But now sells for thousands of you know hundreds of thousands of pounds in the art circuit, and it's sort of become commodified. But in his lifetime, he wasn't ever commodified. I find these characters and this this kind of work very interesting because it's work that isn't driven by a commercial aspect. I, you know, I run a studio where we produce a lot of work 
commercially and that's how we make a living we do this but there is a certain you know the sole meaning these things have apart from a creative outlet and having fun which is the greatest part of, of doing those things is you get to go to morocco you get to go to la you get to right. to hang out with your friends and do fun stuff is that they're just there to constantly push product uh, you know even if it's a nice introspective film about an architect it's been commissioned so it's there to push product mm -hmm. to a certain degree and and these things that exist without the commercial boundaries of that i find is very interesting so yeah it's it's a double-edged sword being interested in outside art and being interested in that kind of creativity because if you highlight it then you kind of ruin it as you go along uh, true i just think it's our nature as humans to want to express and showcase these yeah. stories you know of value and, and i think i mean in my nature and, and the way i've always worked is that i just want if i see something amazing i'll tell people about it i go like go have a look at this look at this you know it's not just outside artists this great film you know first thing i have to do is tell people and it's like this is fantastic you know these things are great and i i keep doing so and people find it tedious sometimes because it's like yeah but can you stop talking about just films or books or whatever but the reason you talk about it is that you think it's so nice and so exciting and you want to jump up and down and tell people just look at this this yes. is great this is fantastic that's very much what you know a lot of my work is driven by the eager will to say isn't this fantastic isn't this amazing why have you not seen this <laughs> what seems pretty like a pure place it's it's a fun place to be you know? yeah it's good if you're curious it helps with you're curious you find things and then you try and convince people about their their greatness yeah um if you will allow me to backtrack a bit mm. because you talked about transition and segues through your career and i just wanted to get more if you don't mind focus and get into a sweet spot about the actual transition from uh, so you're, you're art directing and you're in in advertising and you're dealing with photography and uh, still and graphics and all that and then you make this transition you make this jump into film and you have your own studio and you partner up and you go out on your own um i really like asking people to take the time to describe you know what they were thinking at those moments because we're talking about a major crossroad a challenge you know your change yeah. i want to know how much that change impacted you i also want to know you know the emotional content you're going through at that time and just what it felt like if you can bring yourself back yeah I mean, if I bring myself back, I was about 24, 25 when I realized I should be doing what I was doing uh, because it didn't make me happy. I identified it as if I did what I really believe in, which is, is working with stuff that is about emotions. Uh, when if I did films, which is to me about emotions, that's what the sort of core of films are to me. Uh, if I was doing that, probably I'd be happier. You know, I, that, was, that was the main reasoning. It was a theory mm -hmm. that has proven to be quite correct, mm -hmm. but not entirely correct. But of course... That was what led me to take that leap. I also felt that at that point, as I said earlier on, by 14, I didn't feel like I had any stories to tell or I could tell stories in, in film. But I always toyed with the idea at, at 24 to 26 when I did this change. I felt that I'd started to be able to possibly do this and maybe then hit it later on in life. And, you know, I'm still getting to, you know, sometimes it goes right, sometimes it doesn't. But that's what, what I decided to do that shift at the time. I know that I very pragmatically decided to go away from having monthly income and having a, a relatively stable financial situation, yeah. even if it was unstable at times. But I knew that I was going to throw myself back into what would then be poverty for at least four to six years. Because if you do what you believe in, but you haven't got a monetary aspect of it, you have no... Um, you haven't got any structures for making it into something that you make money out of. And you have no 
idea really of you know i had no idea how you make money out of films you know right i, I mean you no have no all the creative it. skills but you don't you might not at the time have known how directly they no, correlated and, and you, so you feel like you're going into the unknown yes yeah, so you go into the so you kind of go into the unknown and what i did then was sort of deliberately you know only try and make films and and for quite a while for a couple of years and in those two years of like being in a sort of non-zone i met the business partner and colleague i have jeremy who uh, was then in uni he and i did some small film work together for friends etc and as he left uni i'd just come out of a very long relationship and uh, had to move out of my flat because i couldn't afford it and we decided to get a, a studio you talked about earlier on you, you asked me about sort of emotions you have at that point i was convinced at some point i will do it i will do a good film etc so that was my conviction but i also knew that it would cost you in the sense of yeah you're leaving one career behind to restart into something else even if they're very very similar but you have to reset people's mind about what you do you have to sort right. of Re- you know, rebrand almost, yeah, you have yeah. to rebrand what you're doing and so on and for many years it was like something where i had to constantly try and, and uh, explain to people that I'm, yeah, I'm working on this film now. And they were like, okay, so we're, what company? And so on, you know, people didn't really understand that you'd made that change. And uh, But did part of you actually embrace some of the challenges and the, and the, and the negative, not the negativity, uh, did you embrace the, the difficulty? Because it sounded like you were almost sort of keen to take on some life challenges to, to have more life experience to talk about and to share yeah. in your filmmaking. I mean, I, I think it was a, you know, it's, it wasn't a, an informed decision, mm-hmm. but uh, it was it was a place where I felt like, okay, now, been in this long relationship that had gone to pieces, I'd also gone up and down career-wise. I'd had nominal, but to a certain degree, great success working with amazing people like Alexander McQueen, Stella McCartney, you know, Nick and Peter, uh, working with Wolfgang Tillmans, people like that, they, they were amazing. And I decided to sort of leave that to restart and start making films that nobody really cared about. This is sort of, as you say, there is the double-edged emotional thing of that you're almost living through emotionally what you're trying to process in your work. Your life obviously always informs your work. And, and these things are, you know, when you're making fiction particularly, I think it's, for me, it's always quite important to stay quite close to what you know with my fiction films i want to try and stay within the boundaries that i emotionally understand and can deliver and when i make documentaries i'm very happy to go elsewhere i can go to the arctic or i can go to you know other mindsets and so on because then it's clearly so i'm there as a documentary maker i'm curious about something else right when i'm making a fiction film i'm making a film about something that i should know something about that you should feel something about and obviously at that point that's where they inform, yeah you felt like yeah we can you can do it yeah. <laughs> it might take 10 15 years and you know but we you can do it and then it's the very very real world aspects of that you also have to make a living so me and jeremy set up a studio without knowing how to do that but also realized that uh, we could work for clients we were fairly good at what we did we, jeremy's a great dop one of the most amazing cameramen in the uk today and uh, we just started doing work and people came to us and said can you do this for us can you do that some of them people from my old career some of them people who found us new and and bit by bit we built up a company based on it and that company was then the sort of major backings for us to do the films we're interested in where we produce other people's films and our own films and and we develop films for people is there anything right now that is really you're really super excited about like, uh, in the i'm moment? just releasing a, a film that's uh, coming out here on the co-produced with the BBC, which is a great film about a man called Bob Parks, who is a great creative talent and could have been one of the greats uh, in the LA art scene in the 1970s as a performance artist. But 
his wife left him he had a bit of a breakdown and uh, his his art career went bad and he decided to move back home to england to live with his mother in a small village in the new forest and uh, when i got to know him i got to know him through a friend of mine who had learned of bob through bob being in one of his absurdist films where he was hanging naked out of a tree mm-hmm. uh shouting uh, gibberish and after a few years of knowing bob we both decided that we have to make a film about this amazing guy that nobody really has ever heard of that, i'm quite excited about that but as with all films you know you're you're working on the next five projects parallel to that <laughs> so. you don't get to feel the moment uh, you do, but the moment is generally just infused by bad coffee in airports and turning up late for a screening, trying to <laughs> tell the audience something succinct about why you did it uh, whilst you're jet lagged. So the moment is, yeah, it's usually. Yeah, you're not selling it. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> it's great to finish a film, but the greatness of finishing the film is is not the sort of award ceremonies and the festivals. That's just a necessity of of the game. The greatness of it is just in doing it, and at some point in the edit suite, you know that we've got it now and and then you kind of can leave it behind you well that's great i hope it does really well i really appreciate your time thanks so much for having me thank you for having me <laughs> thanks for listening be sure to show your support through comments and reviews 